Welcome to Ars Technica Live. Every month, we bring you an informal conversation with a thinker from the frontier of technology, science, and culture. There's only one rule, no sound bites. We record each episode before a live audience at Longitude, Oakland, California's premier tiki bar. I'm your host, Annalee Newitz. I'm Ars Technica's tech culture editor, and my co-host is Sarus Faravar, the senior business editor. Our guest this month is the amazing T. Chang, who is the VP of Design at Crave, where they make incredible jewelry and vibrators, and sometimes the same. I'm wearing one of their amazing creations. This is a beautiful necklace, which also is a vibrator. Don't tell anyone. Um, can you hear that? <laughs> it's vibrating. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I've been a fan of vibrators my whole life, so um, this is like a really exciting conversation to get to have. So <laughs> everybody's laughing, but I'm being serious. You know, technology is wonderful. So tell us how you go from being someone who's interested in industrial design to someone who's making vibrators. How do you make that kind of transition? Well, I went to college for sex toy design. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. I uh, have been working as an industrial designer for a while, uh, designing various things from uh, hairbrushes to bicycles, and in including furniture as well. And once I started working, I realized there were very, very few female designers in the workplace. I mean, designing female industrial designers. And when I realized that, and I started thinking about all the products that are designed for women. I mean, you know, really makes you question whether how much of it was really considered for the female experience. And so I realized that designing products for women uh, was an area that I wanted to work towards. I remember leaving uh, that job and thinking like, okay, I want to focus on products for women, but I couldn't think of any other company other than Tampax or Kotex. And so when I thought about tampons, I was like, oh, I know it's important, but like, it's kind of limiting in terms of materials. There's like just two. So, so I was like, okay, well, you know, there's, I know there's other stuff. And um, I remember I was living in Boston at the time and I visited a sex toy shop. And when I realized all these vibrators were just horribly designed. And that's when I like this kind of light bulb moment went off for me and like, wow, this is, you know, hugely important for, you know, for women and just like, you know, the human experience. Why is it that it just very much has been neglected by design? Um, so that's kind of where I decided that I was going to start a company and that brought me here. <laughs> Did the evolution of these products come to you? I was asking you just before the show, like which one of these, and I just wanted, I don't know if every, anybody can see this. If you can't right now from where you're sitting, come take a look. These are actually super neatly designed. There's this, I, I think of these as bunny ears. I don't know if that's what you call them or that's, not. That's fine, we call um, it dual motors. Dual yes, motors, but okay. yes, bunny ears works <laughs> fine. I, I think I was in that band. Um, but like you were saying earlier that this was the first one, this burgundy colored one. Can you talk about a little bit like why is this designed in this particular way? And why, like, you know, in terms of, you were saying that before the ones that you had observed in the sex shop were not designed well. How, did, how is this different than what came before it? Yeah, sure. So this is actually our first product. It's technically the world's first crowdfunded sex toy. Um, this was back in 2010, possibly 11, but let me check. But this was a while ago. So this is called a duet. And the idea for this product came about we did a lot of research. We listened to you know women talking about what they were looking for, what they wanted, what they didn't want. And one of the things that we heard was that the whole charging 
getting batteries, having to like remember to grab the right docking station or plug for their battery was just a total hassle. And Or like your uh, vibrators is charged on your wall and your cleaning lady comes in and that's kind of awkward. So, um, so basically what we heard was that just the whole battery and charging experience was just, just sucks. And so we wanted to do away with that. And so at the time, USB became a very ubiquitous, you know, and still is charging platform. And so that became core to the concept. So this is a USB rechargeable product. That was like the core of the design that we wanted to design this USB charging technology around it. So we have that. And so where the two bunny ears, as you call it, or dual motors come from, is that we wanted to make this best external vibrator as possible. And so there are two motors here, and basically what they're designed to do is to surround the clitoris. So this is not for internal insertion, okay? So please don't stick it up anywhere. But this is designed to surround the clitoris. So yeah, and it's fully waterproof, and it comes in this lovely travel case. So it's super uh, travel friendly. And is this one of the ones that has, not only does it have the USB, on it, but it also has data storage as well? Uh, no, not this model, okay. so no. Tell us about how that came about. Why is there data storage on one, one of these models of vibrator? No, Why that's, that's a valid question. So <laughs> data storage, okay. Yeah, we get asked that a lot um, when that model came out. Um, it wasn't like we thought, oh, women needed data storage in their vibrators, <laughs> and so we must make this. No, the idea of the duet came from you know the, the ease of use and the ease of charging. And when we were prototyping the product and we were sending this out to users for testing, uh, some women, you know, they had it and they were like, oh, this is really convenient. Um, oh, I can also store my files on here. And we're like, uh, no, uh, you can't. This is just for charging. But then, she, then, but then they were like, oh, but I would love to store my, you know, private information on here, you know, porn. <laughs> but um, we're like, okay, all right, maybe, possibly we could do that. And, you know, so we could. So we made a kind of a higher-end model uh, for kind of like that specific audience that, um, you know, want to store Because when I saw that on your website, and I'll be, I told Emily before this, I don't know anything. I'm a straight white dude that doesn't know anything, so that's fine. But, like, I thought, well, surely... That must be kind of like, and to be in all seriousness, it might, I would imagine, is kind of a design challenge in terms of like, you know, having people stick things near and inside their bits and have it not be getting, like, I don't know, I just would have thought that there would have been some interference in the port, like you don't want liquids in your electronics, oh, that sort no, of thing. Absolutely. No, no absolutely. Right. Completely valid functional concern. Um, so luckily we've addressed Thank you for it. validating my concern. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> so actually the Duet's waterproof. So um, what happened is that this is the bit that you would use on your, you know, private parts, and it is fully waterproof, so there's a On your clitoris. Here. On your <laughs> clitoris, yeah, just in case you didn't know where it goes. So... Um, when you're charging it, uh, when you pull this apart, this is the part that is that you use charge, and this is the part that actually gets stored away. So that way you don't get that stuff, you know, out there. And because it's waterproof, it's easy to clean. You know, you can rinse it under the sink, and go. it's all good. Also, I mean, I, it was funny when you said people want to store their private data on there. I mean, it's obviously not like their PGP key or whatever. This is Probably like not. my private data is like, oh, I have all my special pictures on there, Porn. put it in the computer, get excited with my pictures, and then my vibrator's right, all charged up. Like, yeah. think how convenient that is, you guys. <laughs> I mean, this is like full service, okay? Yeah, some people, just, they just don't feel comfortable storing their private pictures. Private data. Private data <laughs> on like a shared desktop or something, you know? So um, that way they feel like it's, you know, super private in their private, you know, vibrator and all that. So <laughs> very, very secure. So one of the things that, that 
we write a lot about on ours and lots of other people write about is this so-called Internet of Things. Uh -huh. And I'd be curious to know, because there, I, I am aware of this emerging field, long-standing long emerging field, uh, that is often called teledildonics, where you can control vibrators and other sex toy devices over the Internet. I'd be curious to know if you guys are thinking about doing that, if you think that's a great idea, terrible idea, how you guys fit into that world. Well, okay, I obviously cannot talk about products that we are um, in the process of working on. I'm Fair certainly enough. aware of um, Internet of Things and connected products. Um, it's definitely on our radar, uh, but whether we are working on something or not, um, TBD. All right. <laughs> Good try. All right. <laughs> is, that, is that really something that you think that you guys would want to go toward, or is that are you more interested in this kind of design where you're um, kind of working on more the industrial design, not the sort of software of connectivity and stuff oh, no, like that. Um, I don't. Yeah, no, I, I agree. As far as the way I, I believe myself and also Crave as a, as a company, uh, we approach products that we think about not just the product. The product's actually the experience. So what we tend to do, like the technology, the design, all of that is there to help support that experience. And so if there's an experience that we feel that our customer is wanting or that we want to create that can really deliver a fantastic thing for them, then we would absolutely look into that. We're unlike a lot of tech companies, like people think of us as a tech company, but we tend to think of ourselves as a lifestyle company because for us it's, it's about the experience. And just because you have certain technology like Internet of Things doesn't mean you should do it. Like that's one of my big no-nos as like a designer is that just because you can doesn't mean you should and so therefore when it comes to some of those experiences if we develop and we research and we think that this is going to deliver a fantastic experience then absolutely we look into that but um we we would not rush it just to be like the first to do something or whatever yeah so you've mentioned a couple times that you do user testing so tell us a little bit about how, how does that process work because like we know about you know user testing for phones and for lots of things we can imagine how you do a focus group but obviously it would be really different for something like a sex toy yeah Absolutely. So user testing is core to our process. I mean, I think user testing is core to any modern consumer product company that's developing goods. You know, you have a design, you prototype it, you get it in the hands of users as soon as possible and see what that feedback is. And so for us, obviously, we can't exactly like schedule someone to like, hey, you know, can you use our product at this time and we'll come and watch <laughs> and observe. That's kind of creepy. So no, we don't actually do that, but we do do user testing in a way that respects their privacy and their boundaries and whatnot that also give us really uh, good product feedback. So generally we do a lot of online testing in terms of like we send the products to them in the privacy of their own home. We have a lot of open-ended questions. Um, it also depends on the product, like what stage of that product it is. If it's like super early concept or it's much more developed. And so we have specific questions and open-ended questions that they can answer. So it varies. Sometimes if an idea is super early and it's not very good, we send it out there. All of these products have been tested at least two to three times um, in the user feedback loop. So we keep testing until we feel like a product is ready. And sometimes we have an idea that just like we send it out and they're like, oh, everyone hates it. I'm like, oh, okay, then we just kill it. <laughs> so we're never not uh, beyond our egos to, to kill a product early. And when you say a product doesn't pan out for whatever reason, is mm -hmm. that does that have to do with just like the, the way it's actually, the shape of it, the physical design or the material or like how, what would be a reason that you would reject one? Usually it has to do with the functionality. So with vibrators, like the way we approach vibrators is not that we're gonna make the one ultimate vibrator, like one that will 
be one for everyone. To rule them all. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, obviously there's no one size fits all clothing, you know, but so there's obviously no one size fits all when it comes to, you know, sex. Um, and it's an unfathomably complicated. And so when we are designing products, we try to understand what we're designing for and what kind of experience we want to deliver. So, you know, there are some women who really need a lot of power. You know, so we look at products that provide that kind of vibration and that kind of strength. And there's some that are less about that, and it's more about perhaps a different type of vibration or certain, certain types of forms. When it comes to uh, the the product functionality, we want to make sure that it actually delivers against what we think it's going to deliver instead of market it towards something that is it's just not going to be. So um, like we have an idea for a very unique kind of vibration, and we send it out there, and it turns out that it actually decreased the vibration, or it just, after we prototyped it, just totally didn't work, so then we just killed it, you know, very early on. Can you talk about the, the sort of, like, modeling of the shapes? Like, how, how does something go from, you know, I don't know if you work on pencil and paper to begin with, and then you sketch it on some sort of SketchUp program or something like that? Walk us through that sort of creative process. Typically, um, I do start with pen and paper. That's the basic, but I'm not the best sketcher in the world. In the world of industrial design, I kind of suck at it. But um, just enough so that I know where I'm trying to go and or to communicate what I need to communicate. But ultimately, I also do the CAD as well. So I do the sketch, but at the same time, design, like industrial design, at least at Crave, we are not sort of like these designers in the, like ivory tower. We like, you know, thinketh an idea, and so the engineers maketh type of thing. Um, it doesn't really work that way. It's more very much collaborative. So when we have an idea for a new product, a new design, we tend to have, I have to get engineering parameters, uh, roughly like what type of motor are we looking at? Uh, what kind of battery? What type of shape? What you know, or, or what, what is this intended for? Or ultimately, actually, we ask them the big question, which is, why does this product need to exist? I think that's the most important one, because there's just tons of products out there. And we don't make products just to be me too's. Uh, we tend to make products that have a good reason for being there. So uh, if it has a really good valid reason, then ten, you know the engineers get to work, I start to think, and we always come together at different touch points so that what some of the parameters, technical parameters, inform the design, and some of the design requirements also inform engineering. So we have a very collaborative flow back and forth. And you guys have a factory over in San Francisco, right? Mm -hmm. So how, what are you what are you doing there? What are you building there versus what are you outsourcing? Like, how what is the process of actually creating this? So the the pencil and paper we sketch, we have an idea, we use or test it multiple times, and when it comes to the time when it's ready for pre-production, we always have to evaluate it on a couple of things. One, for example, this particular product, or actually most vibrators, uh, if you look at a, a motor, for example you can't really buy a motor that's made in USA. Like, the technology, the know-how has already left, you know, the US a long time ago. So uh, we tend to look at capabilities. So um, there's some things like China's super strong at, and uh, there's some things, you know, in the States that we can be very good at. So we look at the pricing of that product, the quality, and also just, you know, the capability, like what will deliver the best product. So in San Francisco, we tend to do a lot of assembly in our factory. And there are times we also do production as well for, I think, the duet, the first several thousand. I mean, even I was on the assembly line, like assembling stuff. <laughs> it's because it is a very complicated product. And oftentimes when you have such a, a you know, complex product and you, I think a lot of, you know, early startup consumer companies, they just kind of send that, you know, turnkey that overseas, and they hope 5,000 or 10,000 show up on their shores, you know, like 
totally fine. And I would say probably 75% of the time, there's something wrong with it, and you have to rework. And that's a, you know, that's a horrible thing. So for us, by keeping some of the more complex products here, we can kind of keep a little tighter the intellectual property. At the same time, make sure that the quality of the product, we make sure to get that right the first time instead of sending something you know, so complicated over. Because like China is fantastic at making things that sort of already exist. Like, oh, I want to make a flashlight. Yeah, we know how to make a flashlight, you know, and it's pretty straightforward. But when you're bringing something that's innovative and new to the world, it's, it's, it's a much more difficult journey. And sometimes it's maybe nicer to keep that closer to you. However, there are some things that they're super strong at. So for example, the Vesper necklace. So that's actually fully made in China. We could probably have made it here, but the price point for that product, instead of like $69 or $79, probably would have been uh, maybe around 200 or 300. So uh, it really affects the, the cost. And you know, China makes amazing products as well. So for us, we don't have a religion on, oh, it has to be made here, but it's really what is the right product for the right price and that quality. And it's a, you know, the world of manufacturing is incredibly complex. It's not black and white. And so we, by having manufacturing in San Francisco and Soma, as well as in China, we kind of have the best and the worst of both worlds. You were talking before the show about the sort of commoditization of some of the product design, and I'd be curious, given that you were saying a lot of these products are, or are in whole or in part, are made overseas, mm -hmm. do you worry about the intellectual property of the design being stolen or commodified or you know generic version? I mean, I've definitely seen, and I'm sure lots of people have mm -hmm. seen as well, uh, you know, cheaper generic versions of like that gold bullet vibe. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with with your IP not getting stolen and stuff like that? Yeah, so we definitely take um, IP very uh, seriously. Um, so we have a nice war chest of IP patents and things in the works. And have you guys sued for patent infringement? I cannot comment on whether oh. or not we may or may not do. <laughs> Before, However, though. no, we have not. Okay. Okay, we have so not. So to date. Yes. Yeah, to date, yes. There have not uh, been. But we do okay. take it very seriously. I mean, and so that's what, you know, for us, the innovation, the design, the engineering, all of that is, you know, what we work so hard towards, and we definitely try to make sure to protect that. And yes, knockoffs and things like that are inevitable in um, the world of consumer products, but, you know, you got to do what you have to do to, you know, protect so you're doing, at least for some of these, you did um, crowdsourcing and crowdfunding, like crowdsourcing for information about how to design the product and then crowdfunding mm -hmm. for money. What's some of the feedback that you've gotten or like bug reports that you've gotten that are kind of interesting or stick in your mind? Oh, bug reports. So yeah, what's interesting is that we, unlike uh, software or something that is, you know, that you can just get an update where like you try to do something doesn't work, you're like, ah, I'm gonna send a bug report. You know, we can't exactly do that because the, these none of these are kind of like connected in that way. But we, I guess, through customer service, we get complaints, you know, and things that people get, you know, don't quite understand. Well, this is actually a good one for everyone. So uh, you should never use silicone lubricant on your toys. Like never <laughs> use silicone lubricant on your silicone toys because silicone they hate each other and they'll just do crazy things, they'll deform each other, they'll connect each other, they'll just do all sorts of bad things and they'll void your warranty. Not just ours, but everyone's. So yeah, so don't do that. Because people don't understand. So some people use silicone-based lube, some people use water-based lube, and some people use some kind of a blend. Uh, so you just have to check that very carefully. Um, it's not just us, it's just 
any silicone product do not like other silicone lube. So people yeah. have had problems yeah, with so melting they, toys. Yeah, so they're like, oh, this thing doesn't turn on anymore. I was like, oh yeah, because you know it doesn't, it doesn't, the, the the sleeve doesn't fit anymore, and so it screwed up the motor and all this. Stuff. So yeah, so that's that's a. I guess example, sort of like a bugger, which just errors that people have. Or like, for example, this product. When you want to turn it on, it's you know it's pretty straightforward. You just push this button here. But um, when you're charging it, obviously you plug it in, and then after you plug it in, you have to press the O button to start the charging, because otherwise this USB doesn't really know. Hey, I'm supposed to charge. So people will leave it in, you know, charge for like days, and like it's not charging. This piece of shit, you know, why, why, you know, your product sucks, you know. And it's like, oh no, can you try pushing the O button? Oh, now it's charging. Okay, great. So all's right in the world. <laughs> Do you feel like the principles of industrial design that you have learned as a professional in this field apply to sex toys in the same way that they apply to phones or tables or chairs or bathroom sinks or anything else? Oh, absolutely. Um, there's an old school way of thinking about industrial design that's form follows function. And I think these days more and more designers are embracing form plus function and emotion. And particularly in the world of sex toys, I think that that is super relevant because if you just want something straight up functional, I mean, there are things that you can buy that will do just that. And however, I don't think it's particularly creative because it's pretty much just mimics the, you know, male anatomy. And I think you can be a lot more creative than that. You know, like, you know, nature's already done that. Why don't you, you know, do something different? So when it comes to uh, products, especially vibrators, there are a lot of, well, also historically in the industry, it's pretty much all men designing the products. I mean, sorry to say, guys. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying you guys can't design toys. However, there are nuances. For the record, I have never tried to design a okay, sex toy. Okay, okay. Well, that's, you know, that's fine. You but can you, teach me, though. Perhaps, perhaps. Uh, as long as you don't go starting another, like, sex toy company, then that would be a conflict oh, of interest. She'd but have just to for see you. Giggles, I'll do yeah. it. Yeah, okay, got it. So, form follows function and emotion. So when it comes to, for example, sex toys, because just historically in the past, a lot of the products that you see, which is what you see on shelves, are like, you know, very basic. They're kind of traditional. We call it traditional as a nice way of saying, you know, <laughs> pretty much like rabbits Boring. and penises and stuff with veins and stuff. And, and really, like, you can do so much better. And when a woman is using this or anyone's using this product, or even if you're gifting it to someone, you know, if you're gifting someone that's a big old, like, 10-inch cock, it's like, uh, you know, like, thanks, man. Like, I love you too. Whereas if you give them something that is so much more luxurious, that is kind of a little more thoughtful and well-designed, better materials, all that stuff, it just says something completely different. And also for the user, because there's so much, especially in female sexuality, so much stigma and taboo that just, you know, we're kind of indoctrinated with because of culture, having your sex toy make you feel ashamed or embarrassed you know, is, is not a great feeling. So when it comes to that emotional part of the design thinking, making sure you design it with integrity and class and with intent that is beautiful so that the user also feels the same way. And when they approach a product, they don't feel like, ugh, you know, like, oh, this big old rabbity, weird dolphin dildo thing, you know? They're like, oh, this is nice, this is a necklace, oh, great, oh, and it, it vibrates too? That's fantastic, you know, so. 
So how did you come up with the idea for this vibrating necklace? Because I, I think all of these, I mean, we've, we've all seen, you know, sort of vibrating items that you keep in your drawer, but this is something you can wear. Yeah, so this is one of those, uh, it's a very special product to me. It's actually very dear to me because I think oftentimes as a designer, you have an idea for a product and you put it out there and like nobody likes it. You know, the idea for a lot of these products, they all come from different places. So for the Vesper, it didn't come from user research. Like, we didn't get a bunch of women in a room like, hey, would you wear a vibrator around your neck? Is that a good idea? No, because they'll be like, no, you're smoking crack. You know, that's not what we like to do. But for me, because female sexuality, as I mentioned, have, have had such a bad rep for such a long time that I feel like, you know, at this day and age, we need to openly embrace our sexuality. And for me, you know, fashion is very much a way that we express ourselves, our identity, what we believe in, the brands we buy into. And so wearing almost like your, your vibrator out in a very discreet but, you know, subtle and like chic kind of way, it's, it's kind of like a personal statement for me. So when I ran this with my team, the technology, my engineers, like we all were like, hey, let's you know, give this a go. I mean, my boyfriend was actually kind of like, I'm not really sure about this. <laughs> but it has been an amazing product for us. I mean, just the number of women that once we put this out in the world, I w we were all very surprised at like just how much it resonated. How often yeah. do you see p women wearing them or anyone wearing them out in the world normally? Um, in San Francisco, I see quite a bit. Like once a week? Uh, I think like, Last month, I was at Westfield. I saw someone with it. And when you walk by, do you, do you just give them a high five and just keep walking? No, <laughs> no. Because usually, in, I live in Soma, so like my daily dress is like a my like a beanie and a hoodie, and so I look kind of not like kind of maybe kind of you know dodgy. <laughs> so me walking up to a girl, be like, "Hey, I designed this necklace." She'd be like, "What the fuck?" You know. So I tend to be really. I'm just like, "Oh, well, I see the product," and then my boyfriend's like, "Hey, you should go say something." I'm like, "No, no, no, I don't want to say anything." <laughs> so I do see it quite a bit. Like we, we like to call it like we see it out in the wild. So um, which is kind of fun. So we do see that quite a lot. Um, or actually, if you want to see on, I think on social media, on Instagram or Twitter, if you look up the hashtag Vesper style, you can see just people like freely posting like their Vesper and like just totally owning it, which is super cool. So, and guys, apparently some guys like it too. So it's great. Yeah. Everybody likes vibration. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's one of the five basic tactile groups. I don't know. Anyway. It should um, be the six. Yeah, yeah. six. Uh -huh. I don't, okay. I, uh, yeah, I don't know right. where I was going with that. We can uh, open this up for questions now if folks have questions in the audience. How does somebody become a user tester? Good oh, question. Just holler at me on Twitter and I'll <laughs> sign you up. <laughs> it's uh, What's your Twitter handle? Designer T-I. So one word, designer T-I. So just shoot me a message or tweet and I'll sign you up. But there, as is, long a, there as, is a waiting list, As long list, as you do right? not work for a competing company. <laughs> okay. What is the weirdest piece of feedback that you've received from a user or client? Oh, um, we have this lovely um, panel, like a wall in our office um, that are like cards or notes or like reviews that people have left. Um, this one guy left, I think, for either the Vesper or the Duet. I think it's the... I think it, I think it was the Vesper. He called it the laser targeted orgasm missile. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was quite lovely. Yeah, they were him and his wife. They were very happy with it. 
So I'm glad. So are there any laser toys coming out? <laughs> that I cannot comment on. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> so basically, uh, the question is, um, when you're uh, dealing with uh, Chinese manufacturers, do you um, use a bunch of different companies in China and around here for all different parts and put them together? Or is it just one company that you're working with in China? Or how does that, how do you do that? Yeah, so it's not actually a simple answer. Like I said earlier, it is about the capability and what makes sense for the product and at the right price point. So um, we have some products that are multiple factories and there's some products that's just one factory. So it, it really depends on the product. I'm actually curious just to ask a follow-up to that. You have a lot of experience working with companies in China that are doing manufacturing. So what do you recommend? Do you recommend that people kind of go over and meet with people and kind of look at the companies if they can and see where they might want to get the parts or no absolutely so before i um, joined crave as a co-founder um, i started my own company called incognito which is also sex toys meets jewelry and so i, I mean i was pretty much one woman show I bootstrapped a few thousand dollars and i eventually sold that to crave but for that company i did everything myself so i went over to china i mean first i started on alibaba so that's a good almost like a yellow page sort of thing, Craigslist kind of thing, to kind of search out some vendors. And yes, I do feel like the best advice I can give anyone who wants to manufacture something overseas is to see the factory in person. Like if you are serious in developing a relationship with them, you need to go over there to see what they're about. Because via email, people you know can only hide so much, but when you actually meet them in person and talk to them and see their actual facility, you then really understand what they actually make and how they operate and if whether or not they are someone you would want to work with for your product. So that's like a huge, yeah. Do you need someone to speak Mandarin or Cantonese? Uh, so I speak Mandarin, and it's, I didn't realize it at the time, but um, yes, absolutely, it's very, very helpful. So for companies that, or, or individuals, you know, who you, you, know, you don't speak Mandarin, you can get translators, and or there are other companies that act as almost like a middleman. So I tend to go direct to the factories because I can speak Mandarin and I can just kind of cut through the bullshit. But then if you don't speak the language, it may be you know helpful to have a middleman who can translate and who can kind of suss some things out for you. Uh, the question was, have you seen gender dynamics play out in the sex toy industry at large and also in Crave, the company specifically? Is that right? For my company, I'm very proud to say that we're actually half and half, half men and half women. And as far as the engineering, it's not like only men are engineers. Like one of our lead engineers is a, is a, is a woman. And um, so we are super proud of that. When it comes to the industry as a whole, it's kind of interesting because it's definitely a boys, old boys club. Because this is kind of this industry that started out kind of in the porn DVD kind of industry and they started like hey let's make toys and then so all these manufacturers got together and still a bunch of men you know like designing toys you know of what they think women want and so therefore you have the very basic stuff and also packaging that is like scantily clad women like why would women want that you know but that's what guys thought you know like to say yeah you know put a sexy woman on it you know that's what the industry as a whole is I just got back from a trade show, is completely male-dominated. However, women have always been part of that industry in many capacity, not necessarily in a position where you're actually influencing the product, but in terms of marketing, sales, and whatnot. And, and that industry as a whole, it has a, you know, 
like I've been to CES and I've been to some of these trade shows, definitely a lot less stuffy than, you know, because, you know, we're dealing with sex here. You have like these crazy silicone torsos and like crazy stuff and people are just like doing business like very professionally. And you're like, oh, okay, all right, that's great. Um, and, but when it comes to the actual products in the last, I would say 10 years, it has really migrated toward more female centric and the industry wanting more female designers. So I'm one of the few that is actually trained as industrial designer. So the way I approach products is less of like an inventor, like, hey, I have this idea, you know, I think it'd be cool to have this, I don't know, cupcake and like this vibrator and put it together. Cause you know, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know, but cause sometimes that's kind of, you know, so when you're trained, it, you know, you look, you tend to look at things a different way. And so the industry, I would say is definitely- I'm Totally gonna design the cupcake. What are the sprinkles oh. gonna do? <laughs> No, it's already been done. It's oh, already been done. Oh, yeah, it's kind of bombed. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. no, you don't want there to do that. There was your trip. So, so um, the industry as a whole, however, is really growing up to be a more not just a novelty uh, industry, but as a more serious consumer product industry. And so, I've had multiple people in the industry ask me, like, "Hey, do you know other female industrial designers? Like, we really want to get more women because I think they're like really, you know." fully confronting the fact that, you know, women don't want that stuff, you know? They want something that looks a lot nicer and work a lot better with better materials and, you know, quality. So, uh, so yeah, so that's a shifting um, industry, which I'm really glad to say. And also there are more women entrepreneurs or women who are designers that are starting companies in that space, which is to me super refreshing. I'm always like, yay, girl power. We should, we need more of you. It's a good thing. How big so is the product development team for one single product? Uh, for one product, maybe like four, four-ish people, four or five. Yeah, I mean, that's not counting, obviously, the user t user test, yeah, the product testers and, and whatnot. Yeah, 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 but that's, like, kind of our core team. You know, you have an engineer, myself, industrial designer, and um, so the, uh, other things, it, you know, depends. Yeah. How many people do product test each of these products, like, in, in on average? What do we, how many? People? How many, like, when you have a prototype, like, how many people do you send it out to for product testing in, like, oh, okay. any uh, given round? It depends on the... Um, kind of the stage of the product. So very early on, because um, we, we don't make a lot um, of the prototypes, um, so we tend to make them in-house, in and so we maybe have less than five, so we send those out. Mm -hmm. But as a product becomes more uh, refined, we get more iterations of them, and sometimes we engage China to make more prototypes, and so those would look look like and feel like the real thing, and we can get like 20 to 50 of them. So the, the number changes depending on where the product is in its life cycle, pro I mean development cycle. In terms of distribution, how has that changed in the last five to 10 years, and how do people find your products? So Crave has only been around, uh, we're going on our fourth year. So uh, this February, uh, on Valentine's Day, we're actually going to have a party at our facility, our factory slash studio. Um, so we're only been around four years. So I can't comment on, on obviously, you know, the, the much longer duration. Uh, but what we have seen is that because of this change in like there's a cultural shift in that you know people are opening up and you know sex is you know is no longer as taboo as it was before and so the way people shop for toys or talk about them and also the the traditional sex toy shops that are that were like big al dvds like triple x bookstore you know <laughs> those things and also because of the whole dvds that's pretty much going out i mean there are no more dvds like now there's you know porn on the internet you know like you know you can just you know, go to a website. So those companies are 
going out of business. And so many of them are kind of trying to evolve, try to figure out, if, hey, should we become, a, you know, like a like a high-end adult boutique shop or just, you know, die or whatever, you know? <laughs> so the landscape of brick and mortar is changing. Um, and more and more, there are online stores available that people can buy at their privacy. I mean, Amazon is one of the largest retailers of sex toys. You wouldn't know it because if you Google like our product, you, you wouldn't be able to find it on the first page, but you have to specifically go into the sexual wellness category in order to find it because, you know, all the kids and stuff like that. So <laughs> yeah, it is overall, I feel like trending in a more open environment. I mean, Target and Walmart, they now carry sex toys you know, in addition to condoms and all that stuff that they, they already do. So you can actually buy a vibrator at Target, which is kind of cool. Good job, Target. I know, I Target vibrator. Um. <laughs> <laughs> the question was, how would you approach a sex toy for men from a design perspective? No, that's a really good question. I mean, I mean, sex toys for men, I mean, it's a very valid market. But right now, like, like I said, we're only four years old. And usually with, you know, any company, you want to start somewhere where, you know, you get really good in one particular area before you start to, like, be more, you know, to, to everyone else. So um, we do plan on, you know, expanding our products eventually. But right now we are just staying focused on the uh, female-centered toys and female and, you know, their partners and, and whatnot. So when it comes to designing products for men, you know, I imagine we would have the right people in place, you know, and do the right research just like we always do. But do you think you'd have to have a man to design a sex toy for men? Um, I think the feedback is really important. You have to have, I mean, I think it may be better. So, yeah, vice versa. I mean, I think, yeah, so I don't pretend to, like, know that stuff. Hashtag know, so. men's rights. <laughs> <laughs> Do the duet and the solo, are they interchangeable? Can they swap heads, basically? Okay. Wow, you know our products. You actually named a product that's actually not here. Yes and no. So... They were developed as two different products, even though the duet came first and the solo came second. Their now PCB is universal, so they are agnostic to the head, but if you had the first generation, I wouldn't recommend doing that. So the question is, um, is this a product that sells itself, or do you have to market it, and if so, how, how do you market it? What are the marketing channels? Some of the products sort of sell itself. For example, the Vesper. It's an amazing conversation piece. Women wear it out, and they're like buzzing their friends with it. Like, oh my god, I have to have it. The next thing you know, you know, we get a lot of referrals that way. When it comes to marketing in the traditional sense, unfortunately, a lot of that channel is sort of not available to us because of what we do. The Facebook ads, Twitter, or anything else, the, the, they they see they've kind of right now take the very simple view that all sex toy companies are like part of the whole porn DVD and all that bad stuff. So we actually don't have access to any of that. So the way we have been very fortunate in the way our company has grown is we have really been growing by word of mouth and earned media. So we do not pay, you know, exorbitant amount of money to get placement anywhere. We really have genuine editors who love what we do, like Anna Lee, who asked me, hey, we be here, you know, who like love what we do and they, write, <laughs> and, and they write about us. And that's kind of how our company, I mean, as our press and all of that has really grown. Uh, we hope, you know, eventually that the establishments can kind of get over this whole like, we're scared of sex sort of attitude because it's, you know, not totally healthy and um, so that we can kind of, you know, reach out to, to others. 
So the question is, where do most people buy your products? Is it online or at stores or what? Uh, so mainly people buy our products, I think, uh, probably online through our website, lovecrave.com. Sorry, shameless plug. <laughs> lovecrave.com. <laughs> and oh, wait, what uh, was it again? Lovecrave.com. <laughs> Uh, www. <laughs> well, you know, I don't think you have to have that, but uh, yeah, because <laughs> we didn't, we couldn't afford to buy Crave.com. So yeah, no, a lot of people find us through uh, online store. Um, and if you're fortunate to live in a big city, such as you know San Francisco, you can find Good Vibrations where they love us and we're in all of their stores. But if you live out in, I don't know, Iowa or I don't know Nebraska, I'm not really sure what brick and mortar stores are available to you out there. I mean, we're just getting started, so we hope to you know, get into more stores, but obviously online has uh, really been the best, best avenue for us. And is it available through Amazon as well? Like, it is. Are you, okay, yes, so people could be just strolling through Amazon and yeah. find your stuff. But remember, you have to be deliberate. You have to like click on the sexual wellness, like click, and then you see all the sex toys. <laughs> Otherwise, you just see like, I don't know. You'll end up buying a Vespa. Right, um, yeah. <laughs> It does vibrate, so it could could Valid be a point, good thing. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for being here, yeah, thank and you. thanks everyone thank for coming out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.